On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news and review the revisions to the CMS Interpretive Guidelines for ASCs as published in Appendix L of the State Operations Manual. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 161 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for July 6, 2022, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. And actually, we are not recording in the studio. Yeah, to call this a studio is a a little bit of a stretch. We're in our den because uh, Rosie had eight puppies and we're kind of trying to stay nearby yeah they're two weeks just over two weeks old now but you know we're kind of living in the den right yeah now. <laughs> <laughs> living sleeping <laughs> eating everything it's been quite a joy though to, yeah. and of course rosie kind of grew up on the podcast and on the uh virtual conferences mm-hmm. here so almost everybody knows about her so she's uh, she's a great mommy and uh, right now as we're watching her from our our perch here in the uh, on the couch. Uh, she's uh, she's nursing right now. She's she's, uh, she's doing well. So if you hear any puppy noises in the background, that's what's going on. And the quality of the recording probably isn't as good as it would be in the studio. Yeah, we're using our mobile equipment, but mm-hmm. uh, definitely uh, there's a lot more background noise up here. So we apologize, but it is important that we uh, get this episode out. So probably one of the most major changes, you know, short of actual regulatory changes is when the new interpretive guidelines are issued. And uh, while most of the things we're going to talk about in this episode have been uh, talked about before, uh, there are some uh, you know clarifications that will be useful. So we're going to spend our second segment talking about that. Uh, before we get into that, though, we'll talk a little bit about our, our last couple of weeks. Sue, I had six surveys over a period of 14 days. Yep. was uh, quite, a, quite a run, quite a nice run. And, and they were Joint Commission, ACHC, your HFAP, which was absorbed by ACHC, and uh, HHC, and they were also a combination of 
uh, deemed status and non-deemed status and a combination of office-based surgery and non-office or, uh-huh. and, and ASC. So quite a, quite a mix of, uh, of surveys, but we, uh, we got to experience, uh, all of them all at once, which was nice because most of them were done before Rosie actually delivered. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that she waited for uh, for the surveys. <laughs> I don't know if she was in contact with the surveyors about this or not. But. I don't know because one happened the Monday, like the day after she had her puppies. Yeah, right? so that's true. That's she true. Didn't I did totally have to rush time out. It right. But we are, uh, you know, trying to get caught up. We have a lot of interviews that we've done in the conferences over the last couple uh, months that mm-hmm. uh, we're going to put into the some of the national. Uh, podcasts so uh, we have a lot of material to work with and we are working on the new jersey association interviews the new jersey association conference was about a week week ago was about a week ago and uh, hopefully we're going to publish that also in the next couple days so uh sue we got some news a couple different things uh, before we get into the interpretive guide mm-hmm. yep just a couple things because the interpretive guidelines are it's going to be quite a take quite a bit of time quite a thing. Yeah. so on june 27th the npr health news talked about a retired orthopedic surgeon in California who had had cataract surgery at a local HOPD. And, you know, everything went well. There were no issues with the surgery. But his total bill at the end was $9,084. And even though he had met his deductible, his portion, his private portion, was $4,057. So four months later, his wife had the same surgery, but had it performed at a medical center that was not affiliated with the hospital. Um, And although they both had the same procedures, the same insurance, and um, they both used in-network providers, his wife only ended up owing $204 for her portion of it. Um, Now, they did note in the article that it's not always such a big difference in the procedure prices. And, of course, it's important to know your own policy and read the fine print before you schedule any surgeries. But, you know, it just really points out what what a great cost savings there can be in in ASCs. And it's just... I just thought it was interesting because for it to happen right in the same family, you know, it's comparing apples to apples, basically. Yeah, and, and getting mainstream media coverage, too. Mm-hmm. And so many times these yep. things are in our, in our own trade magazines, and we don't hear about it in the uh, the actual uh, uh, mainstream media. So yeah. that, that's great. And we'll uh, we'll give a link to the uh, the article for people to, uh, to read. And some more good news about ASCs. If people are familiar with the LeapFrog group, they had some information about patient experience during the pandemic, um, that it was really found to be better at ASCs. So the LeapFrog group, they're publishing a three-part series called Patient Experience During the Pandemic. Part one was about outpatient surgical care, um, which included both ASCs and HOPDs. And that was published in the um, spring of 2022. So they note that over 60% of all surgeries that are performed currently are done on an outpatient basis. And one of the highlights, just to quote, um, they said, patients who had same-day surgery are more favorable about their care in ASCs than they were in hospital outpatient departments on all four domains of patient experience, especially in their willingness to recommend the facility. So the four areas of care that were covered on the um, OAS CAPS surveys, which we've we've talked about those surveys So I think what you're saying is that they're using the same criteria that will be used in the OAS CAPS. Yes. Surveys eventually. Yes. Yeah. Um, because even though it isn't required for ASCs right now, some are voluntarily um, right. you know, submitting this. So the four categories are general information about the facility and the staff, like was the patients treated with respect by all staff and clinicians? Was the facility clean? Was the check-in process smooth? 
Um, number two was communications from staff about the procedure. Was the patient given information on what to expect before, during, and after the procedure? Uh, three is overall rating of the facility. How do patients rate the facility on a 1 to 10 scale? And four was willingness to recommend the facility. Um, would the patients recommend the facility to friends or family? So um, ASCs did especially well on that last one, but they were a bit higher on all those categories. Um, and they also found the satisfaction with communication about procedure dropped. Um, they said significantificantly during the pandemic, it, the numbers weren't really not what um, we would consider didn't really, yeah, it didn't seem yeah. that significant, but but there was a slight drop. So it is important, I think, probably because family members not being able to come yeah. in as much, but it's just something to keep in mind, you know, um, to try to make sure you're still communicating, even with all the other complications that are going on around the pandemic. Make sure your patients feel comfortable about what they're having done. But I thought that was, you know, a couple of good, good bits of news about ASCs. Well, and I just had personal experience today. My mother uh, was in the emergency room uh, at two hospitals for uh, much of the day and ended up going home because she was never going to be seen before, you know, like late evening. She went in uh-huh. about 9 o'clock in the morning and never actually got to see a doctor. Uh, and her problem kind of resolved itself. In the meantime, uh, you know, she still needs to see her cardiologist, but the, the frustration in the emergency room, the number of people that are very angry there, uh-huh. um, and what I would say is very poorly organized, very poor communication, you know, with the staff that are there. And, I, you know, uh-huh. soon you and I have talked about it. We feel bad for the staff because yeah, they really, kind of, you know, I mean, we know yeah. they're short-staffed and all that, but, you know, this really is a systemic problem still. It um, is, and I think the more that this, because if you're there working, you know, 12-hour shifts, and you're running around trying to do your best, mm-hmm. and all the patients are angry, understandably so. Right. But you're not feeling like you're you're doing any good, and that all you are is, you know, not doing the best job you would like to do. We're going to lose more and more staff, right. so it's just yeah, a, a bad situation. You're appreciated, and more. Uh-huh. People are not yelling at you all day long. Yeah. So uh, this has been the season for QSOs, Quality and uh, Surveillance and Oversight uh, Memos from CMS. We've talked about them quite a bit in some previous episodes, and we have two more uh, that recently came out. Um, so in June, uh, the Centers for uh, CMS issued two new memos to state surveyors related to the vaccination requirements for surveyors and the frequency of surveys for compliance uh, with the COVID vaccine mandate. And so QSO 2217, which was issued on June 14th, reduces the frequency that state survey agencies and accrediting organizations will review the facility's compliance with the the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. And under this guidance, state survey agencies and accrediting organizations will only perform compliance reviews for staff vaccinations during initial and recertification surveys in response to a specific complaint allegations that allege noncompliance with the requirement. Uh, state agencies and accrediting organizations will no longer be expected to perform these reviews on every single survey. And the memo also notes that CMS intends to update its interpretive guidance describing immediate jeopardy, condition level, and actual harm determinations to ensure deficiency citations recognize good faith efforts by providers and suppliers and to more fully evaluate harm or potential harm to patients or residents by considering trends in COVID-19 rates in the community. So, uh, you know, as we've talked about on uh, the podcast quite a bit and during some of our conferences, the challenge that we have had as surveyors is the amount of time that CMS implies we must spend 
working on the vaccine mandate, which inevitably, given that we haven't been given more time during these surveys, um, means that we have less time for other other things. And I think the word is getting back to CMS that, you know, they need to cut back on that. Yeah. Now, when I was reading this over, I was curious. It mentions accreditation and reaccreditation and complaint surveys. Those are the main ones that I ever see. So, so what surveys are they talking that, about? They don't have to. Look yeah, at that's this. a really good question. And the answer to that is, uh, like, if you have a condition level citation and they have to do a revisit, oh, uh, okay. or if they're coming out to do a life safety survey, those are specifically mentioned in there that those uh, would not have to be looked at, unless, of course, the finding was that you weren't vaccinating mm-hmm. your your staff. But that's that's a very good point. Is that whenever you read these QSOs. Sometimes they leave more questions than answers, but I do think this is a positive step forward in recognizing that COVID-19 is not going to be something that we're going to have to spend, you know, 10 to 15% of every single survey for the rest Mm -hmm. of our lives dealing with, which is, I think, my biggest frustration. Yeah, it seems like a small step, but yes, it's in the right direction. So QSO 2218 all was issued on June 16th. And it rescinds all of QSO 2210 all, uh, which was issued on January 25th. And those of you that listened to the podcast that where we talked about this, that that's the one that established that state agencies and accrediting organizations entering into provider and supplier uh, locations must be vaccinated. And so under the new guidance from this uh, QSO, uh, they are rescinding QSO 2210 all. So as they stated in the original guidance document, state survey agencies and accrediting organizations are ultimately responsible for compliance with this expectation. In other words, that that, uh, surveyors are vaccinated. The federal government has explained that the guidance does not include any possibility of penalties for noncompliance and further prohibits facilities from inquiring about surveyor vaccination status. So what they mean here is that you are not allowed to actually ask a surveyor if they've been vaccinated or condition their entrance uh, into your center based upon that. They went on to say that they understand that there is nonetheless some ongoing confusion about this guidance, which they expect the rescission will resolve. In other words, you know, if they rescind it, then you can't ask the question and there's there's no follow-up that needs to be done. And they did say, we commend all of the entities who have established COVID-19 vaccination programs for their surveyors, and we continue to encourage vaccination of surveyors performing federal oversight surveys. Any questions about state survey agency or accrediting organization vaccine programs should be directed to those entities. So I'll, I'll say as a surveyor at AAAC that I am required to be vaccinated, but that's as far as they've gone, even though I've been boosted have i been boosted twice sue i can't remember oh, only once so i have to look at sue to find that out um <laughs> then uh and i think i'm due for my second booster mm-hmm. but i i am not required to have a booster under um the accrediting organization requirements so uh this definitely loosened things up and i, I think uh, makes it a little bit clearer but do keep in mind and i've seen this a couple of times where people have kind of raised a, a ruckus with the uh, surveyor saying, I need to see your vaccine card, so you're not allowed to test that. So the main part of our episode today is the updated guidance for Ambulatory Surgical Center's Appendix L of the State Operations Manual, which we know as the interpretive guidelines. So I'm going to give uh, reference to references to the, uh, the actual updated guidance, uh, and then we're going to go through the most important parts of it. And I should also point out, Sue, that you and I will be wake, working on uh, updating the survey guide, which uh, was last published about a month before the pandemic. Um, so, uh, 
you know, that's going to be a major project that we'll have to work on, and uh, everybody, I'm sure, will want to get the, their latest copy of that uh, book. So uh, that'll be something we'll be working on soon. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the updated guidance in Appendix L. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey and our virtual conferences would not be possible without the support of our sponsors and patrons. Our goal with this podcast is to help busy ASC executives and staff to keep up with the latest news, learn how to remain compliant with regulations and accreditation standards, and to provide opportunities for ASC leaders to advance in their careers. All of this, of course, costs money, and without our sponsor partners and our patrons, we would not be able to provide this service. Surgical Information Systems was an early sponsor that leads the industry with their software solutions. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, visit their website at sisfirst.com. Our newest sponsor is Trivalence. The Trivalence solution is focused on removing waste from the healthcare payments ecosystem by creating the next generation data-driven supply chain automation and payment optimization portal and infrastructure, saving countless hours, administrative costs, and allowing for scale. For more information, visit trivalence.com. That's T-R-I-V-A-L-E-N-C-E.com. Our oldest sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, is the nation's leader in outsourced regulatory and accreditation oversight. Busy administrators, nurse managers, and medical directors simply don't have the time to keep up with the constantly changing regulatory environment and the requirements of the conditions for coverage and accreditation organizations. AHS helps you to remain compliant for a reasonable fixed monthly fee so you and your staff can focus on taking care of your patients. For more information, visit ah-strategies.com. And last, but certainly not least, our patrons. For a reasonable monthly cost, our patrons support the podcast while receiving access to a database of important information, such as policies, forums, grills, and education programs, as well as the ability to meet weekly via Zoom with each other and the staff of the ASC Podcast. Visit ASCPodcast.com for more information. So on June 3rd, the CMS issued QSO 22-16-ASC, which was updated guidance for ambulatory surgical centers, Appendix L of the State Operations Manual. As we all know, Appendix L of the State Operations Manual is better known as the Interpretive Guidelines. And the Interpretive Guidelines provide information uh, to supplement the regulations that are known uh, as our... uh, CMS conditions for coverage. Uh, the new guidance was effective June 17th. Uh, we're going to provide links to all of the uh, uh, information that we're pr- providing here so you can read the actual documents. And as I said, I'm going to be updating the survey guide uh, within the next three to four months as we uh, get prepared for that. Sue, I'm hearing puppies in the background here, uh, so I apologize. So if if, if it's, it's not us puppies. squeaking, it's those little puppies. They just ate, though, so they're happy. They're, they're happy, yeah. Popping around. 
So we're going to read a little bit from the the overall summary here just to kind of give you uh, an idea of the major changes that were in, implemented in the uh, the new revised Appendix L. Uh, but this is the overall discussion. So the State Operations Manual Appendix L has been revised to provide new guidance on the revised conditions for coverage and provide revised guidance for existing regulations. And a general summary of the changes um, are as follows. So the first thing they did is they made a change in the definition of an ASC. And by the way, I'm going to go into a lot more detail on this. I just want to kind of bullet point everything right now. So the first bullet is definition of an ASC. Minor clarifications were added to the guidance for space sharing and recovery centers. And new periodic written notice requirement. Um, added guidance regarding written notice to the local hospital about the ASC's operations and patient population served. Then there was a section on an anesthetic risk and evaluation. They revised the tag numbering and added guidance based on the regulation change to allow a physician or anesthetist to examine the patient to evaluate the risk of anesthesia. And for fire and building safety, they added guidance in several tags to align with the regulatory changes and adoption of the 2012 editions of the Life Safety Code and Health Care Facilities Code. And then uh, for medical records, they clarified language related to medical record systems and the confidentiality of clinical records. And for infection control, they added clarifications related to reporting of infection control breaches that could potentially expose patients to the blood or bodily fluids of another. And then for patient assessment and admission, they added guidance addressing the regulatory change to the history and physical requirements, which I'm sure is going to be the part that everybody here is going to spend their most time listening to. And for emergency preparedness, a cross-reference, there was a cross-reference added to Appendix Z for the ASC emergency preparedness tags. And then there were a number of other technical corrections that they corrected regulatory numbering, added acronyms, and revised the terminology to align with the CMS regional office name change to CMS location. Um, and then, so I'm going to start out actually by talking about some of the things that uh, were not listed above, which uh, showed up in the discussion as to how to perform a survey. So as part of the information to review, the guidance stated that they will also review contracts with outside services, if applicable, to verify that these are current and that the services are being provided in a safe and effective manner. So this has always been a requirement, but they've actually listed uh, this as a specific item that they will review each time. And that's been my experience, is that we don't always see surveyors reviewing all of the contracts or the contract binder. They might look at specific items, but not the whole binder. And this was interesting. Recordings are discussed in the instructions for the survey team. If the ASC wishes to audio record the conference, it must provide a copy of the recording or transmit a copy to the survey team in a format the survey team can utilize. If the survey team has the capability to record the discussion, the team may use its own recording device for its purposes. Videotaping is also permitted if the survey team agrees to this, and a copy is provided at the conclusion of the conference. The survey team is under no obligation to consent to videotaping and is not required to offer a reason if it refuses to permit videotaping. Any videotaping must also comply with all applicable state and federal privacy laws. So, Sue, when you read through this, you asked a question that I didn't even bother to ask. So, uh, because it specifically states that the survey team can uh, deny... Mm -hmm. Uh, or not consent uh-huh. for videotaping, but that same language is not there for the uh, audio recording, yeah. uh, which I would say, you know, since it's not actually there, it, you know, it sounds like the uh, 
uh, the survey team should allow you to be able to record audio record the ag- exit conference. Uh, so I think uh, it's a good idea. We've been doing it for a while. Most of our uh, we haven't necessarily recorded it. Often we're uh-huh. doing like Zoom sessions yeah, with the other notes. members that are not there on site. But I have had to record a couple where I haven't been able to to be there. Um, But uh, this is happening more frequently, and I think that it was good that they actually addressed that issue. There were also uh, references uh, to other appendices here, just to make it clear. We know know that Appendix L is specifically for ASCs, but there are other appendices in the State Operations Manual that ASCs should refer to, and that surveyors will be looking at while they're on survey, and they are as follows. Appendix I, which is Survey Procedures and Interpreted Guidelines for the Life Safety Code Surveys in the State Operations Manual. Appendix Q, which are core guidelines for determining immediate jeopardy in the State Operations Manual. I assume most people haven't actually read Appendix Q because they never go into it think you're going to have immediate jeopardy. And Appendix Z, which we've talked about quite a bit, which is the emergency preparedness for all provider and certified supplier types interpretive guidance in the the state operation manual and and this was what was specifically added to the list the other items had been in the uh, uh, the interpretive guidelines but now they specifically added appendix z and for case observation they emphasized that at least one surgical procedure must be observed for evaluation compliance with the cfc with the conditions for coverage now i thought I kind of thought that was always. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I, they've been much more specific about it, and I think that's one thing I would say about the condition, the interpretive guidelines here, is that every every revision comes out with more specificity than the uh-huh. previous ones uh-huh. did. <coughs> Okay, so now let's go through uh, the specific uh, changes that we uh, we mentioned earlier. So the first one has to do with the distinct entity or physical and temporal separation. So it's been CMS's longstanding interpretation of distinct entity requirement that the ASC must be physically and administratively distinct from any other entity. Uh, so, you know, you have to, uh, you know, do different services, do surgical services in the surgery center, and you can't commingle uh, servers, services such as practice uh, office visits, um, etc. Uh, and the life safety code implications of sharing that space were specifically addressed in these changes. And this is what it stated. If an ASC is located in a building that is shared with other entities, the ASC must be physically separated from the other tenants by walls with at least an hour fire resistance rating in accordance with an NFPA. And life safety requirements, uh, life safety code requirements, um, uh, are incorporated by cross-reference. If the state licensure requires walls with more than one hour fire resistance rating, the ASC must comply with the more stringent requirement. They went on to state, or to add to the language here, that the fact that an ASC is permitted to use the same space as other entities at different times, in other words, uh, in other words temporal separation, does not mean that the ASC is relieved of its obligation to comply with that f- uh, physical separation, fire alarm, and all other applicable requirements of the NFPA life safety standards adopted for ASCs. And then it stated, if an ASC occupies a separate space within a building that is also occupied by another healthcare facility that is subject to more stringent life safety code requirements, for example, a hospital, the wall separating the ASC may require more than one hour fire resistance rating. So let's say that your surgery center is uh, immediately adjacent to a hospital. The hospital might have a, a requirement for a longer rating than yours, which means that you have to go with the hospital rating in that situation. 
So it also went on to talk about the exclusive provision of limited surgical services. And this is what it said. If an ASC patients are discharged to recovery centers, the surveyors are to focus on whether or not the certified ASC complies, complies with the conditions for coverage requirements, including but not limited to distinct entity, patient assessment, proper anesthesia recovery, and appropriate discharge. Uh, and they noted that you should see each of the associated conditions for coverage requirements for more details. So what this is talking about here is that if you have a recovery care center that is located or co-located with your surgery center, uh, you have to discharge that patient as though they were going home, really. Uh, they're going to another. So they're going to still have to be stable. So when they go to the recovery care center, uh, it's still going to have to be the same type of a discharge that you would have had if they were going home. So keep that in mind when you're uh, putting together um, your discharge documentation for this and make sure that the patient meets that criteria. You're not going to want to discharge a patient to a recovery care center that doesn't meet the discharge criteria for the surgery center. And they clarified the transfer to a local hospital and the periodic written notice. And this was great because this has been a lot of confusion about this. So this, I think, is one of my favorite parts of this to, to really clarify it. Yep, they hadn't been terribly specific before. The ASC is required to periodically provide the local hospital as specified in the conditions for coverage with written notice of its operations and patient population served. Communication between the ASC and a local hospital is important to to assure that hospitals are aware of the potential for receiving patient transfers from the ASC. Um, CMS recommends the written notice be provided upon opening of the ASC and at least every 24 months to ensure the ASC keeps the local hospital informed and up-to-date on ASC information and any pertinent patient population changes. Now, they hadn't given the that 24 months um, before. So, and, so I, I can already see that some uh, people are going to say, well, it says recommends. Well, whenever you see the language CMS recommends, you should probably interpret that as this is the time frame you should go with. So mm-hmm. even though they're recommending it, they the surveyors are going to be looking for at least every two years yeah. uh, being uh, notifying the hospital of your existence. And the written notice must include information concerning the ASC's operations. For example, this would include the ASC's name, address, hours of operation, administrator's name, and contact information for any follow-up questions. And the patient population served by the ASC, this would include, but is not limited to, surgical specialties and whether the ASC sees adult and or pediatric patients. So, Sue, it just dawned on me as you were reading this that since you're giving the name of the administrator as part of this, I guess we would have to assume that any time you had a change in the administrator, you would have to re-notify the hospital of uh, your existence with the new name uh, included. And the written notice may be provided to the local hospital electronically or through the mail. The ASC should maintain copies of their notices to demonstrate that they're providing such notices periodically as required by the regulation. And while a transfer agreement between the local hospital and the ASC is no longer required by regulation, communication between the hospital and the ASC is encouraged. It should also be noted that transfer agreements may be required by state law for licensure purposes. Providing the local hospital with written notice does not preclude those ASCs and hospitals with 
functional working relationships to continue to have written transfer agreements as previously required by the conditions for coverage. So should an ASC have an existing transfer agreement in place with a local hospital, this could meet the requirement for the written notice so long as the agreement contains the required information regarding the ASC's operations and patient population as noted in the regulation. So this is a little bit of a change in the past that we just assumed even if you had a transfer agreement, you would have to notify the local hospital. Uh-huh. But what this is, uh, is telling us is that, you know, read that transfer agreement to see or to make sure that all that information is included in that agreement. And it sounds like it would need frequent updating, or maybe not frequent, but periodic updating. Updating, yeah. Um, additionally, even if the if all the operating physicians within the ASC have admitting privileges at the local hospital, written notice is still required as per the regulation. So this was very good. It gives us a, a lot more guidance on it, and you know, it fits in nicely with the, also the requirement that we provide, um, you know, the uh, emergency. Um, uh, coordinators in your county with uh, notice of your existence too, which is recorded under the emergency preparedness guidelines. So the next standard they addressed was the standard for anesthetic risk and evaluation. And this is what uh, it stated. So immediately before surgery, a physician or an anesthetist uh, must examine the patient to evaluate the risk of anesthesia. And the interpretive guidelines goes on to state that the ASC must have approved policies and procedures to assure that the assessment of anesthesia-related risk is completed just prior to every surgical procedure by a physician or an anesthetist. The requirement for a physician to examine the patient immediately before the surgery is not to be confused with the separate requirement for a history and physical or an H&P assessment if it is required by the ASC policy. So we do know later on in the interpretive guidelines they talk about an H&P might not be always required for a surgical procedure. But if you're going to have anesthesia, you will always have to do uh, an anesthesia assessment. And if an ASC's policy requires an HMP to be conducted prior to surgery, review of the HMP is considered to be a component of the pre-surgical assessment as required upon admission. In those cases, however, where a history and physical assessment is required and performed in the ASC on the same day as the surgical procedure, the assessment of the patient's procedure and anesthesia risk must be conducted separately from the HMP. And this has happened a number of times, Sue, where, you know, we see people trying to combine these functions and say, oh, yeah, that one document takes care of both. Well, uh, you, you do have to separate those functions because one is the HMP and the other one is the anesthetic risk. And here's the information on physical environment. Whether performing surgical procedures in traditional ORs or a procedure room, each room must be designed in accordance with industry standards for the types of surgical procedures performed in the room. An example of an acceptable ventilation standard for ORs is the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, or ASHRAE, uh, Standard 170, Ventilation of Health Care Facilities, the ASHRAE standard is referenced by Facility Guidelines Institute, or FGI, 2010 Guidelines for Design and Construction of Healthcare Facilities. It has been approved by the American Society for Healthcare Engineering of the American Hospital Association and the American National Standards Institute. And then it went on to state that Addendum D of the ASHRAE standard requires relative humidity in ORs to be maintained between 20 and 60%, as we have been told in the past. Uh-huh. But... 
and it's this is now specifically in the interpretive guidelines. ASCs must consider sterile supply and medical equipment manufacturers' instructions for use regarding required humidity levels prior to any humidity level adjustment. In other words, going outside that 30 to 60% number. Failure to maintain manufacturer-required humidity levels may void sterile packaging and result in medical equipment malfunction or failure. So what they're saying here, and, and this has been our... Our finding, Sue, is that even though they've allowed 20 to 60% relative humidity for a number of years, I've not actually been able to find a piece of equipment or even to some degree supplies in the operating room that allow that same range. So yes. it's much safer for you just to maintain those levels between 30 and 60 instead of the 20 to 60. Moving on to the standard of uh, safety from fire, uh, the interpretive guidelines uh, were revised to state that Medicare participating ASCs must comply with the requirements in the ambulatory healthcare occupancies chapters of the 2012 edition of the NFPA Life Safety Code, uh, NFPA 101. Regardless of the number of patients served by an ASC, the, the Life Safety Code would permit a reduction in the fire protection to another occupancy classification at facilities providing services simultaneously to less than four patients who are incapable of self-preservation. However, considering the complexity and elevated risk associated with surgical procedures and ASCs, CMS regulations require that the minimum level of fire protection afforded by the, uh, by the guidelines uh, be maintained regardless of the number of outpatients being served by an ASC. In other words, they're going to apply the whole standard to ASC simply because you're doing complex procedures such as ASCs. It did also go on to talk about life safety code waivers, which we've been seeing an awful lot of uh, recently. An ASC may request a life safety code waiver for deficiencies that would result in unreasonable hardship to correct, but only if the, the waivers will not adversely affect the health and safety of patients. And the ASC should request life safety code waivers as part of the survey plan of correction. Then it goes on to state that the state agency or CMS-approved accreditation organization recommended waiver requests are sent to the CMS location for final approval or denial. An ASC is not permitted to request waivers from the provisions of the um, alcohol-based hand rub, fire watch, and the annual fire day door inspections, as these requirements are specifically listed in the regulation. These deficiencies must be corrected as part of the survey plan of correction within a reasonable period of time acceptable to CMS, which is ordinarily within six days of being notified of the deficiencies. The provisions of life safety decode do not apply to an ASC operating in a state where CMS has determined that the fire and safety code imposed by the state law adequately protects patients in the ASC. Surveyors uh, should refer to Chapter 2 of Section 2470E for more guidance. The ASC must conduct periodic assessments of its policies and procedures in order to anticipate the emergency equipment, supplies, and medications that may be needed to address any likely emergencies, taking into consideration the types of patients the ASC serves and the type of procedures performed in the ASC. So this is important as more complex surgical procedures are moving from the inpatient to the hospital outpatient setting and the ASC setting. For example, if cardiac or spine procedures are being performed, what equipment, personnel, or training may be needed to handle specific emergencies associated with those surgical procedures, such as airway maintenance, emergency equipment, specific cardiology, etc. So this is really making it very clear that your policies and procedures need to, to flex with any changes that are occurring in the types of procedures that you're doing and that you have to do periodic assessments. Now, we do that all the time, of course, with our clients and 
But I do find that many surgery centers really have been uh, slow to respond to changes. You know, maybe during the pandemic, uh, you know, people would make those changes. But when it comes to these types of things, it hasn't always been occurring. And for medical records, there was quite a lot added, but here's the big takeaway. The ASC must develop and maintain a system for the proper collection, storage, and use of patient records. These should be reflected in the ASC's policies and procedures, and they should address issues including but not limited to who is authorized to access the medical record system, whether they are authorized to make entries, to correct existing entries, or only to review the record's content for various clinical and administrative purposes. The ASC's medical records policy and procedures should also address, particularly in the case of electronic medical records, how staff are trained to correctly use the system. And for survey procedures, they are to ask the responsible staff to describe how the medical records system, whether it's paper or electronic, um, how that functions, and assess whether the staff are able to readily identify, access, and use the ASC medical record properly. So, Sue, I like uh, the uh, survey procedures here because, it, as I said, emphasizes the importance of the surveyors asking the staff how they access them, how readily they can get them in, uh, into those records, and what they can do with their access level. So mm-hmm. definitely make sure that you uh, look in that in the policy manual. And for some reason, medical records seems to be one of those items that often is not addressed in policies, at least when I go into many centers. Yeah. Uh, then the, they next talked about infection control breaches, and they noted that some types of infection control breaches, including but not limited to medication injection practices and disinfection and sterilization of medical devices and equipment, pose a risk of bloodborne pathogen transmission that may warrant engagement of public health authorities to conduct a risk assessment and, if necessary, to implement the process of patient notification. So just made it very clear here that if uh, a surveyor finds a situation in which there is an infection control breach, they may reach out to the local health department or the state uh, to basically have them come in and look at what's going on in that surgery center. And then moving on to history and physicals, ASCs must develop and maintain a policy that identifies those patients who require an HMP prior to surgery. No specific list of surgical procedures or patient types is specified in the conditions for coverage. Instead, the ASC is expected to determine which patients should require an HMP, including the time frame for completion and develop policies to ensure those patients receive the HMP prior to surgery. Policies must address certain patient characteristics that may necessitate the need for an examination and testing prior to surgery. These factors include, but are not limited to, patient age, considering the need for for history and physicals based on pediatric, adult, or geriatric age differences, um, what the diagnosis is, the type and number of procedures scheduled to be performed on the same surgery date, any known comorbidities such as cardiac or pulmonary disease, and the planned anesthesia level, whether it's going to be minimal sedation versus general anesthesia, etc., and the ASC's HMP policy must include the time frame for the examination to be completed prior to surgery. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to the time frame for HMP completion. Although no longer required by the regulation, the ASC is not precluded from retaining in ASC policies the previous time frame requirement that HMPs be 
completed and documented for each ASC patient no more than 30 calendar days prior to the date of surgery. The current regulation allows ASCs to self-impose restrictions and allows all effective ASC providers to retain current restrictions for some categories of surgery. It is also important to note that state law may have specific time frame requirements for ASCs to consider. And even though it doesn't say it here, Sue, but some, some accreditation organizations still require a specific time frame also. So before you go out and change all of your policies, make sure that you're still allowed to do it in your state or by your accrediting organization. And I will state that some of the accrediting organizations are in the process of changing their policies to meet with or to agree more or more closely aligned with the CMS requirements. But it is very, very important for you to understand that you can't just say, okay, I'm not going to require H&Ps anymore. You have to address it in your policy and address all of those bullet points that Sue just read through. Yeah. And policy development must be based on nationally recognized standards of practice and guidelines, as well as any applicable state and local health and safety laws. Consideration should also be given to information on history and physical recommendations from specialty societies and medical literature. For example, the American College of Surgeons, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the American College of Cardiology, and the American Academy of Ophthalmology have best practice guidelines or recommendations for preoperative care. So like John just you can't just decide that you're going to do away with that. You have to have really evidence-based guidelines that, that you're working with for your policies and procedures. Yeah, and you're going to have to do the research on it, of course. You know, you're going to try to push it off on the doctors, but the doctors are going to come back to you and say, uh, you know, can you we do the research? Do so be yes. prepared for, for those questions to be asked. So the surveyors, myself included, you know, when we're looking at those policies, we're going to be looking for all of these elements that have been done. And and the reason for that, Sue, I've been very concerned about the reduction or the, the removal of the mm-hmm. H&P requirement because I think it could lead to some significant problems. Because uh, we know that sometimes patients, even with an H&P, show up and have problems that re- necessitate cancellation of the surgery or, or result in complications. So, uh, The ASC should also consider their policy uh, and process for cases where the patient is referred to the ASC for surgery on the same day as the referral. The policy should state how the ASC will handle those situations that require a same-day H&P per policy. So those would be things like uh, retina procedures or uh, vascular access surgery where a patient is brought in, you know, scheduled on the same day that the surgery is actually done. And the ASCs are encouraged to review the scope of procedures performed within their ASC along with national standards and then engage the governing body and medical staff to determine which patients require an HMP prior to surgery. Additionally, the ASC should conduct periodic assessments of its policies and procedures in order to ensure that patients receive the appropriate pre-surgical assessments, taking into consideration the types of patients the ASC serves and the types of procedures performed in the ASC. So this provided an awful lot of guidance on the histories and physicals. But I know you're going to get a lot of pushback from the doctors. I know ophthalmologists in particular are really hot on this issue. But make sure that they understand that there's a lot of policy development, a lot of research that needs to be done in it. You need to do this very carefully because you know that this is going to be very closely looked at when the surveyors come out for your next survey. So when you make a radical change like changing the frequency or how recent the uh, history and physical is, be sure that your policies support that. And obviously, even if you're not due for a survey for quite a while, these are things you have to follow and, and that can be looked at if you ever did have a complication. Right. You know, you just want to make sure you're, you're doing everything right. 
And you bring up a, a good point too, Sue, is that if you find that as a result of this change in the HMP, you have a higher incidence of complications or transfers to the hospitals, um, that would probably uh, make it, uh, I mean, that's something that surveyors will be looking at and say, hey, based upon your own experience, it looks like you might have to modify your uh, policies and procedures regarding the histories and physicals. So keep that in mind is that you're going to have to not only justify any changes to your history and physical based upon, you know, what the national guidelines are, but also what your past history has been. The next area was the pre-surgical assessment, and it talked about how each ASC patient upon admission to the ASC must have a pre-surgical assessment, of course. The assessment documents any pre-existing medical conditions and appropriate test results in the medical record, which would need to be considered before, during, and after surgery. And the focus is on identifying any health conditions that can have an impact on the patient's ability to tolerate the surgery or the anesthesia, and to provide an opportunity for appropriate action up to and including postponing or cancellation of the surgery. The pre-surgical assessment must be completed upon admission for each patient and is separate from the HMP assessment that might also be required by the ASC policy. The operating physician or other qualified practitioner in accordance with applicable state health and safety laws, standards of practice, and ASC policy must complete the pre-surgical assessment. So it probably would have been smarter for us to put this next to the anesthesia assessment discussion, but of course these two are very, uh, very closely tied together. Yeah. Well, that was a lot. We've uh, spent about a half an hour talking about all those things, but I think this was a very, uh, I actually, uh, Sue, thought that this was probably one of the better written um, changes to the interpretive guidelines that Uh we've seen over the years, and it certainly has provided a lot of guidance that has been sorely needed. Uh, I think, you know, certainly with regard to the hospital transfer, you know, and notifying your local hospitals, and of course the whole issue of the uh, histories and physicals, which were very controversial. It is nice when it actually clarifies things instead of, making things more confusing so right. it, it was well done so let's see how whether we have to have some clarifications of the clarifications <laughs> so let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk about upcoming events In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So we have some upcoming conferences. The uh, August 2022 Administrator Boot Camp will start on August 30th and go for four days with mentoring. This will be about the uh, fourth boot camp that we've done. Very excited about continuing with these. We have over 130 graduates of our uh-huh. of our boot camps over the last two and a half years. Um, and as we say, uh, there's a lot of information on ASCPodcast.com, but this is a great opportunity for you to prepare for the CASC exam or if you're new to administration in surgery centers or if you want to become an administrator in the future. Uh, this is a great program that provides not only a four-day, very comprehensive conference, a lot of resources, books, but also, you know, weekly mentoring or weekly drop-in sessions, if you so wish. It's not required. Uh, but uh, a lot of people do take us up on this and join us on Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Sue, uh, recently, uh, the Saturday sessions include uh, periodic visits from our puppies. That's if right. that's not enough reason for you to uh, join the boot camp, I don't know what else would be. And the CASA annual conference and exhibits is September 7th through the 9th at the Hyatt Regency Indian Wells Resort and Spa in Indian Wells, California. And John will be doing a finance boot camp. And we're very uh, 
Uh, Sue and I are looking excitedly about getting out there, but with all of the problems with uh, uh, air travel, I'm not sure I'm that excited. I can't wait to see the price for that uh, yeah. that trip. But uh, uh, So I will definitely be there. We'll have to see whether Sue is able to get out there. So uh, September 15th through 16th of 2022, we're going to be doing the ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Seminar, which will be presented uh, virtually over a two-day period. Uh, we're going to be doing this as part of uh, Coding Compliance Management uh, Christina Benton, who has been with us many times over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. So we're very excited about uh, getting back to a regular schedule for these uh, finance conferences. And also don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. There's the Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and the Administrators Boot Camp self-paced version. As well as the uh, Nursing Directors uh, Boot Camp, which mm-hmm. we now have a self-paced version. And we have not announced it yet, but the next Nursing Directors or Director of Nursing Boot Camp will be somewhere around November of 2022. So if you are interested in that, you can either sign up for the self-paced version or wait for the actual in-person virtual conference in November. (laughs) And just a reminder to everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. We have over uh, 150, 160 patron members uh, right now. The patron member program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences over the years, links, policies, and procedures, forms, drills, discounts and services and books and access to AEU credits. And also uh, members do get a discount at many of the conferences. Many, many times that discount alone will pay for a membership in a year. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. So for more information, you may visit asc-central.com or ascpodcast.com. That's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. 
We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. 